Good evening, verse by verse. It is super good to see everybody's faces. I'm excited for tonight. Today we are starting out in a new book, 1 John, and we will be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which reads, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. Let's say amen together, church. Amen. Very good. We'll go ahead and have a seat, everybody. Thank you for that, Mark. Thank you as well, Brian, for reading that. As Brian mentioned, we're starting a new series in uh, what's called the Johannine Epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So go ahead and take your Bibles with me and turn to 1st John. This is a series we're going to be working verse by verse through these letters, and uh, I'm going to preach most of the messages for this series, but also you're going to be seeing some other people with, within the Preacher's Guild uh, up here, uh, in, including Tom Didier and uh, Daniel Armstrong, Mitch Palermo, as well as one of our elders, Robin Harris, also a few others. So um, what I'm hoping to do today as we get into it is just to introduce not all three of the books, but First John in particular. A great book, First John. A, a very memorizable book. I think as we work through uh, this particular series, you're going to see a lot of passages that you recognize, but, but maybe you miss the context, how it all comes together within the entirety of this book and the argument that, that the author John wants to put forth. So speaking of First John, Y'all can read this on the screen. The church father, Augustine, he wrote the following about this book. He said, this book is very sweet to every healthy Christian heart that savors the bread of God, and it should constantly be in the minds of God's holy church. I think in large measure, it's because there's so much focus in this book on love for one another and, and the love that we demonstrate in light of what Christ has done for us in terms of love. And if you've read Augustine's writing, you know that love is a central theme in his writings. And a lot of that is derived from this book, from 1 John. The reformer John Calvin said about 1 John the following. He said, this letter is altogether worthy of the spirit of the disciple who, above others, was loved by Christ, the apostle John, so that he might exhibit Christ as a friend to us, that's what John's trying to do in this book. And that's not bad for the Apostle John, who Jesus once called the son of thunder. John at one time wanted to destroy a whole village of Samaritans. Jesus got a hold of his life, and now he's preaching a gospel very much focused on the subject of love. Martin Luther said about 1 John, this is an outstanding epistle, 
It has John's style and manner of expression. So beautifully and gently does it picture Christ to us. Yes, it does. The famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said this about 1 John. This epistle is specially perfumed with love. As you read it, you cannot help realizing that it was written by a very tender, gentle hand. And yet, he says, when he had written concerning love to Jesus, he was moved to an intense jealousy, lest by any means the hearts of those to whom he wrote should be turned aside from that dear lover of their souls who deserved their entire affection. In other words, John is tender in this book, but he gets tough too. He gets tough with folks. I know we like to think of love in our own world as like a big pile of mush. That's the way it's described by a lot of people, like puppy love kind of infatuation stuff. That's not the way love works in the Bible. Love is tender. Love is tough. And John's going to be tender in this book. He's also going to be tough with us. And I'm thankful for that. This is a great book. I'm excited about the opportunity to expound it with you over the next few months and to drill down on this concept of love as well as some other things. Today, my goals are pretty modest. I just want to introduce this book. I just want to give you a flavor of it. I want to answer some of the preliminary questions that you have. Who wrote this book? Who was it written to? When was it written? So let's begin by this. If you have your notes with you, just some questions to get us started here. And this is always a good place to start whenever you endeavor to, to study or work through a book of the Bible. Some of these questions are, are basic and helpful for understanding the message of the book. So three prelim preliminary questions here. Who wrote 1 John? Well, the answer to that question, that's like asking, you know, who's buried in Grant's tomb, you know? Has, Grant is. Who wrote the book of John? It's John. Now, which John? Not John the Baptist, okay? But John the apostle, John the son of Zebedee, the fisherman, the son of thunder, as Jesus called him, the person who was fishing on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus came to him and said, enough of that, I'm going to make you fishers of men. John was one of those four, along with his brother Andrew and then James and then, uh, sorry, Peter and Andrew there, as well as John's brother, James. And so Jesus gathers these men and they, they start following Jesus for, for three years, ministering with him and, and seeing his power displayed, seeing his teaching. They, they saw the prophecies concerning him fulfilled. They saw his death and his resurrection. John saw amazing things in that three-year period. And John was part of that, that inner circle. You know, Peter, James, and John. So he was on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus got transfigured before him. John saw the, the miracles in Galilee and he traveled with Jesus all the way to Jerusalem. He was with him that last week of his life when he was crucified. He was the only one of the 12, in fact, that was there as Jesus was being crucified. As I mentioned on Sunday, Jesus from the cross talking to the one whom he loved. That's the way he's described in the, the gospel of John. Jesus wanting his mama to be taken care of says, John, you're the guy. 
You're going to take care of my mom. Maybe they were related. Maybe they were cousins. I don't know. But whatever the case, Jesus looked to John, this one who had a special relationship with Jesus, and he gave him this responsibility to take care of Mary after Jesus died, was resurrected, went home to the Father. All of this gave John a unique vantage point from which to write this book. And look, you know, Paul, we talk a lot about Paul. Paul only had a few post-resurrection encounters with Jesus. John, on the other hand, he lived with Jesus for three years, wandering around as they both, him and Jesus and the other disciples, preached repentance. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, wrote secondhand information about Jesus, possibly through Mary, possibly through Peter, among others, as he did research. But John was there when Jesus did his miracles. John was there when Jesus preached his sermon. John was there when Jesus said, to tell us die from the cross, it is finished. Out of all the New Testament writers, except maybe Peter, John had the most intimate connection with Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, he called himself. He had that close personal relationship with him. And look, that's why he emphasizes so strongly at the beginning of this letter, in the first few verses, first through few verses, I saw him with my eyes. I, I heard him preach with these ears. I touched him. These things really happened with Jesus. I'm an eyewitness to this fact. He's testifying to the word of life. Who's the word of life? More on that later. So who wrote the book of 1 John? John the Apostle did. And he had, he had a unique relationship with Jesus and a unique vantage point from which to write this book. When did he write it? Well, it's hard to say but I'll give you an approximation. Somewhere, probably, around AD 90 to 95. Just so you know, John never calls himself the author of this book. So technically this book is anonymous, but throughout church history, he's been identified as the author. And, and also unlike Paul, as you read Paul's letters, Paul's typically addressing his letters to somebody either Timothy or a church or, you know, it's clear who it's written to. But, you know, John doesn't do that in this letter. And it's amazing how this book opens up. Maybe you got a sense of this as Brian was reading, because in verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we, you're like, whoa, what, what do we do? We're right into it here, you know? There's no pleasantries. There's no, hi, how you doing? Let me tell you a little bit about myself. John just, I mean, like, like a horse in a race out of the gates just starts going. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Like, oh, wow, wait, okay, what are we talking about here? He just gets right into it. Coincidentally, those of y'all who are familiar with John's gospel, he does it there too. How does John's gospel start? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, with, and the word was God. It's... No greetings, no pleasantries. Buckle up. Let's get into it. Let's theologize immediately. That was John's, that was John's approach 
with writing his letter and also the gospel. But even though John never identifies himself in this letter, so just a little bit of background here, internal and external evidence both point to him as the author. Early church fathers, including Clement, Tertullian, Eusebius, especially Irenaeus, said clearly very early in the Christian church that John wrote this letter. And, and they really, I mean, there's some debate about it, but not really, not people who really care about the Bible. I mean, you just, you read the gospel of John, you read these epistles, first or third John, and it's clearly the same person. It makes sense to connect that with John the apostle and what we know of his life and what we know of him through church history as well. But keep this in mind too. So, so throughout, most of y'all were here when I preached through Hebrews and I was like, the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, because we, we don't know the author of Hebrews. I'm not going to say the author of John, first John. I'm going to say John or John the apostle is the author because I think there's there's internal and external evidence of that fact, and it, it's clear to me. But, but don't forget, and, and this should be true with every time I even reference a human author, the Bible wasn't just written by a human author. The Holy Spirit is always the co-author of these books because, I mean, we're, this is verse-by-verse verse fellowship. We need to know this. All Scripture is God-breathed, says 2 Timothy 3.16. And men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I'll say John wrote such and such, but just log this away. Every time I say that, I know and it should be understood, the Holy Spirit is the co-author. Now, let's get back to the date. As far as the date is concerned, so probably somewhere between 90 and 95 AD, that's the best that we can make sense of, of the evidence for that. And that's important to know because, you know, that's 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So these are the, the last books written, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, Six, 60 years. So, and by the way, that's something like 40 years after Paul wrote his letters to the church. That's something like 30 years after Luke wrote Luke, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. It's something like 30 years after Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. If Peter and Paul died in, you know, around 68 AD from the Emperor Nero, so this book was written long after those apostles had died. John's the only one left. The only apostle left as he's writing this. John, who by now is in his 80s, an octogenarian, or maybe even his 90s. Here's a new word for me, a nonagenarian. The old man, the old apostle is writing. And that's why you see in 1 John, it's very endearing. As he says in this book, little children, little children, little children. I mean, it's, he's not being condescending. He's an old dude talking to people who are way younger than him. And he's the last apostle left, still ticking, still leading the church at age 80-something, 90-something. And John at this later date, and, and this is important to know too. So as you read church history, most people think that John ended his life in the city of Ephesus. 
And so as he's writing, he's probably writing to the church in Ephesus, maybe some of the surrounding areas, the churches in Asia Minor where, you know, I mean, these churches were planted decades before this. So you might say, well, Ephesus, we know Ephesus because Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to Ephesus and Timothy pastored Ephesus. I talked about Ephesus this last Sunday because Timothy's there. But listen, this is 30 years after those writings. This is three decades. You know how much changes in three decades? Three decades ago, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States and I was in high school. I didn't even have an email address three decades ago. Things change. And in fact, things have changed in this cultural environment, in this cultural milieu in Ephesus, because one of the things that John's dealing with, and you sense this as you read it, is there's, there's this thing that he's got to address. He's got to confront. I told you there's some toughness in this book. And it's called Gnosticism, or probably more accurately, we would call it a proto-Gnosticism. This kind of incipient evil that had matriculated in the church that really comes from more of a Greek dualism than anything that, that you would extract from the Old Testament or that would, that would be you know, Judeo-Christian in any way. And the, the, the issue with this Gnosticism, it, it put kind of this, this overemphasis on spiritual things are immaterial things and it would downplay material things. The body, eating, marriage. We saw, we got a sense of this even in some of Paul's writings, but it's like that, that, that issue just advanced to a greater degree in the time that John wrote this. And so a lot of this mentality had the idea that, you know, because the only things that are important are these, these immaterial things, these ideas, these philosophies, the, the non-corporeal world. It doesn't really matter if you sin and you indulge your flesh and just do all kinds of bad things, who cares? The only thing that matters because the flesh is corrupt and immoral is the, the, the spiritual things. And some forms of this Gnosticism actually believe that Jesus had not taken on a real human flesh, a corporeal flesh, because how could something holy like God be clothed in nasty flesh? That's impossible. So they advanced these ideas that God had, you know, kind of floated to the earth, Jesus as a, as a phantom being, and just he, he appeared to be fleshly. He appeared to suffer on the cross. He appeared to, to die, and be, but not really. He's just, because God could never do that. And and John wants to address that head on and, and destroy it as a false theology. So the heresies are gaining ground. I think some of this might have circulated too because, you know, all the apostles are dead. So, I mean, we're in the 90s AD and now there's no eyewitness testimonies. You know, before in the days of Paul, there, people had seen Jesus. People had talked to Jesus. People had interacted with Jesus. Now, now there's one guy. There's one guy left who was an eyewitness. And he's going to tell you about it. Second John 7, by the way, 
kind of alludes to this. He says, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into our world. So there's people that are circulating saying, Jesus, he didn't really come in the flesh. How could he? And part of John's message here is to these false teachers in the church, basically tell them, telling them, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare spiritualize what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Don't you dare marginalize the incarnation that Jesus, the God of the universe, took on flesh. That's the most precious truth that we have as Christians. That God took on flesh and died so that we might be saved. And And he goes after them. And this is important for us too, in our modern day world. So that's the first century world, the end of it anyway. In the 21st century, I, I get the sense, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have Gnosticism. Well, maybe, neo-Gnosticism. But I, I feel this, like what's happening in our day is that the historicity of Jesus' death and resurrection, they're always being called into question. Did it really happen? Are, are these testimonies, these documents really trustworthy? And, you know, people trying to constantly mythologize or relativize the truth of Scripture. That's what we deal with in the 21st century. And the question that, that we've got to ask ourselves in light of all this and what John is saying and what we're dealing with in our own world is, are we going to actually believe what is stated about Jesus or not? Are we going to embrace what God says? Are we going to take him at his word or... Are we going to believe the dissenting voice that for centuries have tried to marginalize the truth about Jesus? So that leads me to my third preliminary question. Why study this book? Why study 1 John? Why come on Wednesday night to listen to this, this book expounded and to ask some questions of Pastor Tony and and others. Some of you might say, well, what's the word of God, Pastor Tony? You know that. Come on. That's why we study it. Yes, good answer. Why not study it? What else are we going to do on Wednesday night? But let's go a little deeper than that. Yes, it's God's word, but why specifically this book? Why is it worthy of our attention? And, and, And what are some ideas that that come through this book that can help us in our modern day world. Like I said, we, I think we live in a skeptical age or a postmodern age, if you want to use that term, where things are relativized and truths are kind of obfuscated. And, and there is, I think, a kind of Gnosticism in our 21st century world that's powerful. And, and, and here's what I'm noticing right now. Even among agnostics, even among skeptics, there's this desire in people's heart for something transcendent. There's a desire for something spiritual. There's a desire for for encounter with something beyond the world. And and I understand that because there's this God-shaped vacuum inside of our heart and we we try to fill it with things. And if it's not the God of the Bible, then we'll, we'll fill it with something else. And, and I see people filling it, not with the truths about Christ, 
but with other things because Christianity in their minds is, it, it expects of us, and they're right, obedience and faithfulness and, and holiness. They want the transcendence, but they don't want the holiness that comes with it. I remember listening to a podcast by Al Mohler. He was talking about this. There's this thing in, in Louisville where he lives called Pagan Pride Day. And in this particular event, it was this, I don't know, it, this uh, kind of caravan of people going through the city and they were celebrating what's called American neo-paganism, Wicca, Druidism, a sutra, these other kinds of things, these polytheistic earth-based religions. And I, I think things like that will continue to be popular in our country because it fills that God-shaped vo void inside of people's hearts. But they don't have to be accountable to a sovereign and holy God. And that's the draw. Yeah, they want transcendence, but they want it on their own terms. That's us as Americans. We're consumerists, right? We, we want this thing, but we want it on our own terms and we want to be in control of it. And what's happening is our, our people in our country today, they're, they're embracing what you might call a new age mysticism and pushing Christianity and Christians farther to the fringes of society. And then there's others who are trying to heap doubt on the historical truths of the scriptures. Even among Christians, I hear this from time to time as a pet. Did it really happen? I mean, can I just believe that it happened even if it didn't happen? Like, we, you know, like we're Peter Pan or something. Let's just believe it into existence, whether it happened or not. And now, look, that frustrates me. That would have frustrated John. Because he says here, yes, it happened. Jesus came in the flesh. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard him speak. I touched him with my own hands even after the resurrection. These things actually happened. Y'all with me? I, didn't, I wasn't planning to get this amped up on Wednesday night. But y'all need to know that our faith in Christ is built upon historical reality. This isn't wishful thinking. These things happened. And I, I love the way 1 John starts because he just lays it out. I saw it. You can, you can, you can ignore what you... What, I, what I'm saying here, you can disbelieve what I'm saying, but I'm telling you right now, I saw it. I saw him with my eyes. Let me just cover some themes that are prevalent in this book. So that's, we're gonna deal with some of the, the historical framing of, of what Paul, Paul, John goes through here. But there's some other things that come through this book that I think are really powerful for us. The, the subtitle for this series is Love One Another, and you'll see that. So last week I talked about the nature of our family and First Timothy 5, and boy, that's in First John 2, love one another. And it's such a prominent theme. But let me give you some other 
themes that are in this book. Y'all can write these down, just four themes. The first one is assurance of salvation. And part of that is already what, I, what I've talked about in terms of the historical reality of this, these events. And what is assurance of salvation? Tim Keller calls assurance of salvation not just knowing Christ, but knowing that you know Christ. And that's good. Do you know Christ? Yes. Do you know that you know him? That's assurance of salvation. And we'll cover that in the weeks to come. John writes this in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things. Why'd you write this, John? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants you to have confidence. John wants you to have assurance of salvation. He wants you to know that you know Christ. I run across people all the time in pastoral ministry who struggle with assurance of salvation. Am I really saved? Did I really say it right? Did I really believe it like I should have believed it? And they, they just wrestle through that. And consistently, I point them to 1 John and say, you're not the first to struggle with this. And God in his goodness has given you this book in the New Testament where the author states clearly, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this book's incredibly valuable for that. So we'll work through that. Here's another theme in this book, walking in the light. John loves contrasts. He loves it even in his gospel. You know, light versus dark. That's something that shows up a lot. Good versus evil. And walking in the, what does that mean? Walking in the light. John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does it mean to walk in the light? And how does a person walk in the light? And how is light differentiated from darkness? We'll get into that in this series. Here's the third theme. There's a contrast that John builds between worldliness and godliness. And this is going to be a difficult one for some of us because what we'll see here demanded by the Apostle Paul is a Apostle John. Come on, Tony. John, not Paul. Whose idea was it that I preached twice a week? Anyways. And you are. Good job. The Apostle John, it's a, he, he wants to give us a clean break from this world. And he, he has this expectation of us that we not love the world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does that look like, not loving the world? And how do we, how do we marry that to the, to the John 3.16 statement when God so loved the world? Shouldn't we love the world like God loves the world, but we're not to love the world like this? How is that different? We'll get into that. So there's worldliness versus godliness contrasted in this book. There's also, and I think this is probably the primary theme of this book. There's also loving one another in the body of Christ. I probably quote 1 John whenever I do cross-referencing. I try not to do too much cross-referencing because 
I told the preachers guild guys, like, don't, don't be guilty of death by cross-reference whenever you're preaching. But it, when I do cross-reference, when I do, when my mind does draw something, I can't tell you how many times I gravitate towards 1 John, especially for stuff like this, because th these verses, 1 John 3.23, and this is the commandment that we believe in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, and love one another just as he commanded us. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Ah, oh, that's good. 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We'll spend some time in this series talking about love in different settings. Love, love for your spouse, love for your children, love for your neighbor. But I'll just tell you the most important emphasis here in John is love inside of the church. Do you love your brother and sister in Christ? What does that look like if you do? And how, how do we do that practically? And why do we do that? All right. So let's, that's my introduction. Let's get into verse one. And in the time that we have left, I want to cover the first four verses of this book. This is some of the best Christology in the New Testament. And I'll give you three things. Three things that the word of life came to offer you. And here's the first thing. The word of life came to offer you eternal life. So, verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, what in the world, let's just think deeply about this, verse one. What in the world could be both from the beginning, in other words, before time began, and at the same time can be touched with hands. How in the world do those two things come together? From the beginning, but touched with hands. It's, it's from the beginning, meaning it's eternal, it's otherworldly, and yet it can be touched and seen and heard. What is that? Well, the that is really a who. It's the word of life. And that word is the second person of the Trinity who's revealed as Jesus in the New Testament. And that's not the first time that Jesus is referred to as the word. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. How can you be both with God and be God? How does that make sense? The answer is the Trinity. 
And the answer is the second person of the Trinity who was with God the Father and yet at the same time was and is God. And so John now, you can, you can hear that echoing here in 1 John 1, what he's already said in John 1. Who was the word that became flesh and dwelt among us? John 1, 14. So that word that was in the beginning, that word that was with God and that was God, John says later in verse 14, that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So that's how, that's how you can have something that's both from the beginning and yet you can, you can touch him. That's Jesus. You have this echo in 1 John 1 to John 1, but you also have a, an even further echo to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was there creating. Now, he, here's a new thing in 1 John 1. Jesus isn't just called the Word. What's he called? Verse 1. What's it say at the end of verse 1? The word of life. So you got this little prepositional phrase at the end. Why the word of life? What does that mean? Well, Christ, not only the word, not only the one that was from the beginning that created the entire world, but, but also the one who is the source of life. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. What did Jesus say to Martha? just before he raised Lazarus from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. Christ is from the beginning. He is God eternal. He existed in eternity past. He was never created. And there was never a time when Christ was not. And at the same time, he's the word, but he's also life. He's the embodiment of life. He gives us life. He's the word of life. I heard a pastor say this this last week. So just brace yourself for this. I'm going to try to tie your head up in knots if I can. He said, Jesus was the only man who had a heavenly father, but no heavenly mother. Who had an earthly mother, but no earthly father. Who was older than his mother and who was as old as his father. Did y'all get all that? That's Jesus. That's the word of life. But in the fullness of time that this Christ, he took on flesh and he lived among us and, and John touched that flesh and, and Thomas, Thomas saw the scars in his hands even after he was resurrected. Verse two alludes to that. This life, verse two, this, this word of life was made manifest. He came into our world. He came into his own creation. And we have seen it and testified to it. Here it goes again. I've seen it. The old man, John, I, I saw this. And I've been telling people about it for 60 years and proclaimed to you not just the life, but the eternal life. So we're moving here from the word of life to what Jesus brings, and we can be a part of this. And that's eternal life. 
which is with the Father and made manifest to us. This is amazing Christology. This is amazing soteriology here. What John is saying here is that Christ is God. Christ took on human life. He was incarnated into the flesh. And John says, we saw him, we touched him. And Christ, because of his death, because of his resurrection, he extends to us victory over death. He gives us the opportunity to live forever. He is eternal life and he offers us eternal life. The word of life came to offer us eternal life. So it's Wednesday night. The people who come on Wednesday night are the people that are really committed Christians, right? Good job out of you. But I would be remiss to not stand up before you and tell you right now, remind you, or maybe tell you for the first time. There is only one way in this world to escape eternal death and live with God for eternity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. The only way that you're going to be saved, the only way that you're going to escape death, the only way that you're going to escape the fires of hell for eternity is your faith in Jesus Christ. He is eternal life. If you have Christ, you have eternal life. If you don't have him, you don't have that. You don't have anything. Do you know this Jesus Christ is your savior? I've said it this way before. No Christ, no life. N-O, N-O. No Christ, K-N-O-W. No life, K-N-O-W. No life, no Christ. No life, no Christ. Go ahead and write this down as number two. So the word of life came to offer you eternal life. He also came to offer you fellowship. Look at verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have, the Greek word is koinonia, with us. And indeed our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with each other that's part of that love one another thing. We have fellowship with one another and with Jesus Christ and even with God the Father when we receive this free gift of eternal life that God gives us. Look, we may not see him with our eyes like John did. Someday we will. We might not have touched the resurrected body of Jesus Christ like Thomas did. Someday we will. But but we have fellowship with him. We can have, what's fellowship mean? We can have communion with him. We share something with him. We can pray to him. We can even have fellowship with God the Father. We can even, this just boggles the mind, we can even call God the Father, Abba, Father, in light of what Jesus has done for us. We can commune, we can have fellowship, we can, obviously this fellowship will be perfected in eternity. In other words, when we get to the new Jerusalem, it's, it's like, y'all know, it's like the Garden of Eden 2.0. I've said that before, right? Walk with God in the cool of the day. We'll talk with him. We'll know him. We'll have fellowship with him. It'll be perfect. But what's amazing about this is that we can have that even now. There's an aspect of that that we can already 
have. Let me just point out something real quick, technical. Everybody see that, that verb may have, that, that which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, may have fellowship. That's a present tense verb. And it's actually what's called a subjunctive mood verb. So the present tense indicates that we can have it now. We can have this fellowship even now. And the subjective mood is, you use the subjunctive mood when, it's, when it indicates a possibility, like you may have this, you could have this. And the could, the condition is based upon your faith. If you have faith in Christ, you have fellowship. No faith, no fellowship. If you know faith, you know fellowship. And, and that present tense framing lets us know that even now we can commune with God. We can read his word. We're indwelt by his Holy Spirit. We can, Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf to God the Father. Not only do we have fellowship with God the Father, look at the end of verse three. We also have fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has actually placed his Holy Spirit inside of us as an outworking of that fellowship. Even as we go through the hardships of life, we can have that fellowship, we can have that relationship. By the way, fellowship, that's a misunderstood concept. It's not parties and potlucks and get-togethers at church. Or let me say it this way. It's not only parties and potlucks and get-togethers at church. The biblical idea of koinonia fellowship has the idea of sharing in community. We, we even celebrate it by taking communion and remembering what Christ has done for, for us. In the community of Christ, you have relationship, you have camaraderie as you work towards a goal. You have the Holy Spirit inside of me and the Holy Spirit in, inside of you share something that's a tighter bond than we can have even maybe with our own blood family members who aren't saved. And that communion is something that we share, share in light of what Jesus has done for us. And we share it not only with one another, but we share it with the God who created us and saves us. No Kiwanis club can offer that. No bar in town can offer that. No sports club can offer that. We've got a corner on that in the church. I mean, it, that's one of the best selling points for the church. You can have fellowship with the God of the universe and fellowship with other people who love and serve him. And then write this down as number three. Eternal life, that's good. Word of life came to give us that. Fellowship, that's good too. One more thing. The word of life came to offer you joy. John writes in verse 4, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be... Who's the hour? Who's our in that verse? I think that our means John as the spiritual leader of the church community, but also the church community itself. In other words, John is writing about how Christ has come and John's testifying about how Christ offers salvation to us. And as part of that offer of salvation, Christ offers joy. 
If you know Jesus, you know joy. Know Jesus, know joy. And by the way, joy's a, joy's a fascinating topic. It's not the same as fickle and fleeting happiness. Happiness comes and goes, whether you know, life is kind of going the way you want it to. Happiness as a kind of glee or merriment is dependent on your circumstances. Joy is deeper than that. It's greater than that. It can be maintained through all the difficulties of life. G.K. Chesterton said once that joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian. We got a corner on that too. Billy Sunday said once, if you have no joy in your Christian faith, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. How's your joy, Christian? How's, how's that fruit of the Spirit in your life? I mentioned on Sunday, Martin Luther's wife, a woman named Katerina von Bora, and Katie was every bit as formidable as her husband. She wasn't afraid to go toe-to-toe with Luther. Luther loved her for that. There's a story told about Katie once that Luther was having a bad week and was kind of in a foul mood, depressed. So she decided to basically have a little funeral. So she put on these black funeral garbs, this, this black funeral garb and, and dressed like she was in mourning. And Martin Luther came up to her and, and said, what are you doing? Why are you dressed like that? Whose funeral are we going to? She said, oh dear Dr. Luther, haven't you heard God is dead? And, and we're going to his funeral. And Luther said, what, what are you talking about? What, what foolishness? And Katie responded, it's true. God must have died or Dr. Luther would not be so f- sorrowful and depressed right now. And to Luther's credit, he snapped out of that depression thanks to his wife's comical and soft rebuke. Here's the lesson in that as it relates to joy. What could possibly happen in this life that could steal our joy? God's not dead, folks. In fact, God the Son died on the cross so that we might escape death forever. Now, I don't know what you're going through. I know life is hard. And I know it has its challenges. No matter what we go through in this world, we can still have this undercurrent of joy. It's a divine thing. We can have in this world a contentment, a peace, a confidence, and nothing in this world should rob us from that. The word of 
life, Jesus Christ came to give us joy. And John is writing these things. Part of the reason he's writing the book of John is because he wants your joy to be made complete. He wants you to have what Peter called joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. I want that joy. More of it anyway in my life. More of that fruit of the Spirit. And to that you might say, I want more of that too, Pastor Tony. I want to know more about that joy. I want to know more about this fellowship, this koinonia stuff we're talking about. I want to know more about eternal life and how I can have assurance of salvation. And I want to know more about love, how we can love one another in the body of Christ. And I want to know more about Jesus' deity and his humanity and how those come together. I want, to, I want to know all that and more, Pastor Tony. All right. We'll get into it. Come back next week and we'll talk more about it. Pray with me. Lord, we are so grateful for the eternal life that the word of life has provided to us. And Lord, my, my words this evening fail to convey just how amazing and awesome the word of life is. So Lord, hear my heart in this as I say, Jesus you are amazing, and we love you so much. And we thank you for what you've done for us, and we believe what John testifies to here, that you indeed came into our world, took on human flesh, and you died on the cross for our sins, and you rose from the dead. Lord, John wrote these things inspired by the Holy Spirit and recorded them for us, and we believe it. We believe it. And Lord, we know you have so much in store for us in this book, in 1 John, in the weeks to come. God, give us, I pray, wisdom and understanding and insight and grow our knowledge, Lord, of you. Grow our joy. Grow our assurance of salvation. Grow our love for one another, Lord, as we encounter you in your word in First John. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.